podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good boys and girls, two-footed podcast on Wednesday, January the 19th, brought to you by epindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, a virtual privacy network will allow you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from, while also keeping your data safe. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot, five-star reviews across the board, and with the code EPL. 599 you can get 599 off your first month subscription go to libertyshield.com at checkout use the code EPL599 you get your first month for 1 quid it's 699 thereafter but there's no contract no long term commitment you get instantaneous download to your device you can get using straight away with libertyshield.com we're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft a giftware and homeware company Located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide, check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right, folks. It's Wednesday. We had one game in the Premier League last night. Chelsea won. Brighton won at the Amex. Great point for Brighton, but another another disappointing result for Chelsea. Chelsea went one up through Hakim Ziyech. It's a good shot from distance, but I really think Robert Sanchez should deal better with it. I thought Chelsea had started the brighter of the two teams, looked the more threatening of the two teams, and had already worked Sanchez before that. The goal was deserved. They deserved to go one up. And then they became really flat and then they became really clogged. Uh, The attack just didn't really make a whole bunch of sense to me. Now, Zajic, I thought, had a dreadful game against City. I'm not really sure what he did to warrant a start in this one. We saw Tuchel move away from the back three that he has traditionally played at Chelsea and go to a back four and play a box midfield, which is funny because Ralph Rangnick arrived at Manchester United and all the thought the talk was of this box midfield he was going to play and then he tried to play it and it didn't really work. And the recent reports coming out of United are they're going to move away to a 4-3-3 as Tuchel tries out the box midfield. And the problem with this box is that some of the pieces just don't fit very well. The front two he went with was Lukaku and Hudson Adoy. And Hudson Adoy is a, a tremendously talented player. He's not a forward player, he's a wide player. This should have been Timo Werner or Pulisic. It should not have been Hudson Adoy. If you want to get the best out of Lukaku, 
you need a pacey striker up alongside him who'll work the channels and drag defenders away to create space. Hudson Adoy will work the channels, but he will work them too wide. He will go and he'll pull fullbacks out of position. He's not moving centre backs around. I also don't think the pairing of Jorginho and Kante works all that well as a two with a back four behind them. I don't think there's enough physicality. I don't think there's enough in terms of positional defensive work. Jorginho's got good positional sense, but he's not a particularly good tackler. He's not a particularly strong player. Kante is obviously a magnificent ball winner, but he's best when he's allowed to go and rove and roam and, and do his thing. This would have worked better with Saul next to Kante. It would have worked better with Havertz and Mount as the two attacking midfielders rather than Zayic and Mount. And it would have worked better with Werner or even Pulisic next to Lukaku rather than Hudson-Odoi. Rudiger and Silva did okay, but this is Brighton. They're not a team that scores a whole bunch of goals and they certainly weren't going to score a whole bunch of goals the way that you saw them line up. They went 4-1-4-1 and there seemed to be a rotation of striker between Welbeck, McAllister and Motor, who found himself in a lot of central areas. I really like him. I think he's really developing into a fine player for them. But they had Mope and Trossard on the bench. Those two came on and caused Chelsea a lot of problems once they came on. It was good to see Mo uh, Moises Casado on the bench for Brighton. I would have liked to see him get a run. But Solly March was the third sub brought on for you know reasons. Um, Casado's a huge prospect. He's one that when Brighton got him, they outbid. Or I don't know if they outbid, but they certainly fought off a lot of competition from a number of other clubs to get him. Uh, they came back into the game in the second half and Adam Webster, with a phenomenal header from a set piece, gets the equaliser. Mark Cucurella sort of took over the game in the second half and really started to dictate things from that left-back position. Lamptey looked lively on the right wing. He didn't seem 100% when he went off. I wonder if there's going to be some sort of knock-on effect uh, from what looked like a, maybe a minor injury. Rather than something serious, it might just have been a minor injury, but he, he didn't look 100% going off. It could just have been exhaustion because he hasn't played a whole bunch of football this season. They are wor still working him back from that bad hamstring injury. The draw was a fair result overall. And... Graham Potter will obviously be the happier of the two managers. And Potter is doing a tremendous job at Brighton. And he's he's building something that I think he'd be mad to walk away from unless it's a top job. Unless he was got, he, you know, if, if Arsenal moved on from Arteta, if Conte walked away from Spurs in the summer, which I, do, I don't think will happen. I think the Arsenal-Arteta one is possible. Um, but I think Arsenal will aim higher. I think they'll, well... I think they'll aim at what they think is higher. I think they'd look at Rodgers. I think Leicester would then look at Potter. Now, Rodgers and Potter have the same agent, so it may well be that as part of the agreement to help grease the skids for Rodgers to move on, and I think Rodgers will look to move on at the end of this season if he hasn't been fired, because this season's not going to plan. It's not making him look particularly good the agent could potentially turn around and say, look, we can get you Graham Potter here. And if you're Leicester, 
Graham Potter is the absolute perfect manager for you. If you look at that Leicester team and start to put them in the positions Potter would put them in, I really do think it could be a special group. He's done outstanding work with far less money, far less quality at Brighton. Walks into the Leicester job and as opposed to Brighton where he doesn't really have a goal scorer, he gets Vardy, he gets Daka. He also gets Ian Acho, who's the perfect Graham Potter forward. He gets Harvey Barnes, who's got huge potential to really tick up in terms of goal scoring. He could keep Luckman, another very promising attacking player. He gets Madison, who fits in with exactly what Graham Potter wants to do. Now, he will probably lose Telemans. I'd imagine Yuri Telemans will leave this summer, but Ndidi will be there. Sumari will be there. He'll get Ricardo Pereira. He gets Castanier, gets Fafana, gets Sionchu. You probably only need one or two players to really set that thing off and, and a long-term solution and goal as well. But, you know, Kasper Schmeichel's not exactly a bad keeper. So for Potter... Like, there's been talk of Everton, and that would be a silly move for him. Wait for a job like Leicester, or wait and see if an Arsenal or a Spurs come knocking. But wait for one of those jobs. Wait for a club that will give you time, will give you backing, will give you an identity, a structure. Because Everton have none of that. Brighton have it, and he's a big part of why they have it. We all know how Brighton are going to play. We all know how they defend. We know what they do in attack. And what's funny is there's a couple of managers who are very similar to Graham Potter, in particular in the, you know, how they like to build and how they set the teams up to defend. defend. So you look at the Brighton defence they played yesterday and you've got Dan Byrne as one of the centre-backs. And Dan Byrne's good squad player at the Premier League level, but, you know, he's not great. Alzate sitting in front, he's, he's not a fantastic player. He's a decent player. He's not, you know, pulling up any trees. But you see Brighton limit opponents to really low probability chances, and that's what they do. It's the same thing Wolves do, and it's the same thing Chelsea do. Each of these teams use a very similar defensive setup structure mindset where the individual pieces maybe aren't of the highest level and you look at that Brighton defense last night Veltman's decent Adam Webster's very good and I'll come back to him Dan Byrne like I said he's fine as a squad player Cucurella's very good but he's not exactly a defensive minded player and you could look at that and switch it to a back three wing backs as well, because you can push Lamptey back, move Veltman and Byrne and Webster across and push Cucurella on. And again, it's the same group of players. And this is largely how they defended yesterday, in that they would push Lamptey back and slide across. And it worked very well for them. But individually, they're not of the highest standard, other than the two wing backs and Webster. There are weak points in that defence. But... It's very, very hard for the opponents to target them. You rarely get 1v1 with a Brighton defender. And when you do get 1v1, they're all 
very much tuned in on what they need to do, which is not to jump in, not to commit to anything. Their primary job is to shepherd you into an area where either they get a help defender or you take a bad shot. And that's what they gamble on. They gamble on, we're going to give you the opportunity to shoot, but it's not from an area that you want to shoot from. It's from an area that we think our goalkeeper has the highest possible opportunity to save the shot, or you're just not getting the shot on target. And it's clever. It's a good way to overcome a lack of high-level individual defenders. Now, Brighton have Lewis Dunk to come back into this team, and he obviously helps. But they've been doing this this season with Dan Byrne. Webster's missed much of the season. They've been doing it with Shane Duffy. They've been doing it with Veltman. It doesn't really matter who plays for Brighton. The structure, the idea, the mindset all remains the same. The focus remains the same. And like I said, Wolves do the same thing. You look at Wolves defenders, Roman Sice is okay, but it's not like he's a great defender. He's he's very good on the ball, but he's a midfielder who got converted. Connor Cody's the same. Connor Cody's a very good passer of the ball. He's not a particularly good defender. But in their system, because he's coachable enough, because he's tuned into what he wants, what he's needed to do and what's been asked of him, because he's got good concentration, he works to instruction. Max Kilman is the best of the three Wolves centre-backs by a substantial margin. Max Kilman may actually be the most underrated defender in the league right now. I, I think there's a real case that Adam Webster's in that as well. But Max Kilman's very, very good. And the fact that Wolves got him from Maidenhead United for pennies is really, really impressive. We saw last season as he sort of began to break into the team and get games here and there, playing instead of Sice and instead of Bolly. We saw a very promising defender. And this season he's been really good. And what's underrated about him, number one, he's obviously a very good defender, but he's really good on the ball. He's really good on the ball. And the reason he's really good on the ball is because before he was a professional footballer, he was a professional futsal player. And he's got 25 caps for England's futsal team. He's really comfortable on the ball. He's comfortable in tight situations. And he's got passing range. He reminds me quite a bit of Adam Webster in his ability to carry the ball and his ability to pass the ball. Now, last night on social media, Jamie Carragher tweeted out that he thought Adam Webster was the best passing English centre-back from off both feet. And I agree. I think Webster's ability to just ping a pass, and, and not just an accurate pass, I'm talking about a pass that's perfectly into stride. Like, we see a lot of... Jordan Henderson is the worst for this. Jordan Henderson will play a pass directly defeat, which is fine, except when you're playing it to a runner who has to slow and turn to receive that pass. 
because you've played it to where his feet were and he's running ahead. Max Kilman plays it into stride. Adam Webster plays it into stride. And that's, I think, what sets them apart. I said, no, sorry, Carragher said Webster's the best passer off both feet. And what immediately happened was Arsenal fans and Manchester City fans did what they do on social media, which is they started to cry. So City fans wanted to demand that John Stones get his respect. Now, we'll come to John Stones, but let's start with Ben White, who the Arsenal fans were absolutely flabbergasted had been disrespected like this. Ben White's a good passer of the ball, but what Ben White is exceptional at is carrying the ball. Ben White's a much better ball carrier than he is ball passer. That's what makes him such a high-level ball-playing defender. He can pick the ball up and carry it 25 yards. Yes, he's a good passer. But Webster is a better passer, a better pure passer of the ball. And I agreed with Carragher and I said, Connor Cody's also a better passer than either of them. And I stand by that. Now, again, what happens here is you get a bunch of kids who just don't understand the game pulling up some chart that they've stolen off somebody else that shows that Per 90, Connor Cody is one of the least progressive passers in the league. And they think that means something, largely because they don't understand the game. They don't watch Wolves play. And they don't understand that when Wolves build out, they build through Kilman and Sice. That doesn't take away from the fact that Cody is a fantastic passer of the ball. What it means is that it's not his role. Connor Cody is not being asked to ping 20, 30, 40 yard balls. Connor Cody has been asked to distribute the ball into those wider areas where Kilman and Sice will move it forward or where Semedo has dropped back and Nuri has dropped back and then they'll carry the ball forward. Connor Cody is a better passer of the ball than Ben White or John Stones. John Stones is a very overrated, overrated passer of the ball, as he is in every single aspect. I mean, John Stones is, is talked about as if he's the next Bobby Moore and how, you know, he's got all this potential and, and you know, John Stones is, is such a great young player. And then you turn around and you look and John Stones is going to turn 28 by the end of this season. He's not a young player anymore. John Stones is what he is. And what he is, is Manchester City's third-choice centre-back. And then you get other people saying, well, John Stone's England's best centre-back. First of all, no, he's not. Secondly, that's not the conversation here. Nobody was making a case that Adam Webster or Conor Cody are better players or better defenders than John Stones or Ben White. Now, as it happens, Adam Webster's a better defender than either of them. But that's neither here nor there. They are better footballers overall than Adam Webster. They are better footballers. Webster's a better defender than both of them, and he's a better passer than both of them. But they have more pace. They're better ball carriers. They're a little bit more comfortable in tight spaces, things like that. White can also play in midfield and at right back, which gives him an advantage in terms of you know, positional flexibility. But Connor Cody, clearly the worst player of the lot and the worst defender of the lot. He's Surprisingly, he's a worse defender than Ben White. But 
the question was never, and the conversation was never, these are better footballers or better defenders than John Stones or Ben White, or even better ball-playing centre-backs. But there's this bizarre thing on Twitter now where you've got all these little weird kids who want to think that they're really clever. And you, you find them very easily. The Arsenal fans that think their club is called Asna, A-S-S-N-A, if you see that in a bio or tweet, just mute the idiot because they're clearly a weird kid. You know, City fans that just get so upset whenever they deem any sort of disrespect to anything. Like John Stones has had one really good season for City. He's been there five years. He's had one really good... And let's remember, even in that one good season, he only played 22 games in the league. That's it. He played 22 games in the league. It's not like he played every game and was outstanding all the way. He had a good run in the Champions League and then was a mess in the final. But John Stones had one good season at City in five years. This is year six and he's back on the bench. When America Laporte got hurt in 1920, rather than play John Stones, Pep was rolling out Otamendi and Fernandinho at centre-back rather than play John Stones. It's incredible. John Stones and Luke Shaw and Jesse Lingard and a couple of others like this are players that we have watched for many years be underwhelming. And last season, with no fans in the stands, they had career years. And people bought into it and thought, oh, this is what they've always been. No, it's not what they've always been. They've been painfully average for the majority of the time they've been with your club, often below average. And, you know, in the case of Luke Shaw, he cost $34 million in 2014 which I think Paul Tompkins told me is the equivalent of about 70 million now. And John Stones cost 50 million in 2016, which is probably the equivalent of about 70 million now, 60 million maybe. Both of them have been disappointments. Both of them have been disappointments. John Stones was the second most defensive, most expensive defender in history when City signed him. The second most expensive defender ever. He's had one good season. Luke Shaw's had one good season. Now, Luke Shaw admittedly had a horrific injury. But, you know, what did he miss? Eight months? Out of seven years? Eight years now? Eight years is in one good season. He's missed one. What about the other six? And neither of them have been good this season. Like, John Stones has not been good when he's played this season. He's very, very careless with the ball. And that's the other thing about... With Stones and with with Ben White, less so White. White, I think, is, is cleverer. Stones can be very lax on the ball. And his decision-making isn't always great. I never worry when, when Adam Webster or Connor Cody make a decision 
to ping that long ball or to try a risky, a quote-unquote risky pass, I don't worry about them giving the ball away because I think they're intelligent enough to have scanned the field and realised, you know, what are the ramifications if this goes wrong? I don't think Ben White, or I don't think John Stones does that. I think John Stones plays too much off instinct as a centre-back. But the disrespect that I saw to Adam Webster, and then Wolves fans were saying, like, Max Kilman is is a really good... And I was like, having chats with Wolves fans, agreeing with them, we were talking about Wolves this year, and, of course, you get the morons come in, oh, Ben White's better. No one's talking about who's better. We're talking about a better passer of the ball. And both Kilman and Connor Cody are better passers of the ball. And Max Kilman might just flat out be a better ball player. He might just flat out be a better ball player. Because he's really good in possession. Anyway, that's a tangent. Let's go back to this game that we're talking about, which is Brighton against Chelsea. And this marks the third draw in four, the fifth draw in seven for Chelsea. A Chelsea team that have won only four of their last 13 matches in the Premier League. A Chelsea team that have won only one of their last, what's that, seven games? One of the last seven games in the Premier League. A Chelsea team yet to win a Premier League game in 2021. And I've seen some people starting to suggest that maybe Thomas Tuchel should come under pressure. And I saw a tweet, and I wanted to check it out, uh, from Jake Humphreys. Now, where is it? Oh, here we go. Chelsea 12 points off the top. Frank Lampard lost his job a year ago this week, 11 points off the top. Now, this was his third attempt at sending this tweet, and I thought it was worth looking at. So, Jake Humphreys, if you remember, is the guy who tried to give Frank Lampard credit for Chelsea winning the Champions League. He, he tried to give Lampard credit for winning the Champions League. He then tried to you know demand that Frank Lampard get interviewed for basically every Premier League job that has become available since. And it is true that Chelsea are 12 points off the top. There's no denying that that's what the situation is. There's no denying that a year ago Lampard was sacked and they were 11 points off the top at the time. Um, but it's not that simple, really. Let's have a look at where the Premier League was last season. So Lampard was sacked on the 25th of January. On the 25th of January, Chelsea had played 19 games. That We were through 19 weeks of the season because, you'll remember, the season started later. So the gap was smaller because less games had been played. Chelsea this season, I believe, had played 22 games. Uh, 23 games. So Lampard had played four games less. So there was an earlier point in the season. That gap was growing when Lampard got the heave That was not something that was going to become smaller. 
under Frank Lampard, Chelsea had lost five of their previous eight Premier League matches. Six losses through 19 games in total. This season, they've only lost three of 23. The issue this season has been too many draws. Eight draws, which certainly not ideal. But if you look at, again, the teams that are drawing a lot of games, Brighton draw a lot of games because Graham Potter and Thomas Tuchel play quite similar styles of football. And they've got quite similar mindsets. Only Brighton have drawn more games in the top half than Chelsea. The thing with Tuchel is he's kind of being forced to be overly cautious. He's not really in a position to take the risks that I think he would like to take. So let's rewind Thomas Tuchel's career. He takes over at Mainz in 2009 and he books a trend in German football where traditionally in German football, managers have been quite dogmatic. Very much having their ideas of how they want their team to play, setting their team up to play that way. And living with the results. And Thomas Tuchel walked into Mines and thought, I'm going to do something different here. I have ideas and I have principles and I have fundamentals of what I want. But I'm going to adapt them. I'm not going to make the team adapt to me. I'm going to adapt to the team. And he would set his team up, depending on the opposition, in different ways, different shapes. The fundamental practices were things he ingrained in them. Not taking risks in defensive areas, progressing the ball through central areas, and movement. Always movement. But when it came time to play Bayern Munich or Borussia Dortmund, he parked the bus. Because why wouldn't you? Even if you lose, you're better parking the bus and not getting hammered. And at Mines at that time, the mandate was stay in the division. It wasn't, you know, bring them to Europe. It wasn't go and win a cup or go and win the league, get top four, anything like that. It was simply stay in the division. And that's what he did. And for the five years he was there, he did an outstanding job. And he continually adapted to the players he had, the circumstances he was working with, the opposition they were facing. And he made himself not like a Nagelsmann who will jump from, you know, one tactical set to another to another in one game. But he would be very flexible. And he got this reputation as a very flexible, adaptive coach. Then he went to Dortmund. And obviously at Dortmund, the expectations are higher, but you're not really expected to win the league. If you can get a decent challenge in for the league, if you can win a cup, if you can get them top four and play exciting football, Dortmund will be happy enough. And at Dortmund, he did put together one of the most exciting teams that I personally have ever seen. Thomas Tuchel's Dortmund team were sensational. 
to watch. There's just no way around it. They were absolutely magnificent to watch going forward. Now, there was issues with that team. Defensively, they could be calamitous. But if you have a look at his first season with Borussia Dortmund, Aubameyang, Mkhitaryan, Royce and Kagawa as his front four. Kagawa is the 10, Mkhitaryan from the right, Royce the left, Aubameyang up front. And the constant movement. What we see at City now, that carousel of movement that I talk about, we were seeing then at Borussia Dortmund. Now, one of the things that went against him at Dortmund was he had some injury issues. But that front four with Ilkay Gundogan in midfield joining those attacks was so similar to a lot of what we see City do these days. He had Christian Pulisic, who he developed as you know a young player. He brought into the group. Klopp had had him training with the group, but he was the one that really put faith in him and really gave him his opportunity to shine. And personally, I don't think any of those players have been as good since Tuchel managed them at Dortmund. Aubameyang hasn't. Mkhitaryan's never come close. Royce hasn't come close. Now, he's had injury issues, of course. And Kagawa was kind of the last great run of him. Gundogan, obviously, has gone on to a different level under Pep. But, you know, those as the kind of attack-minded players, Sven Bender as your more defensive-minded midfielder, uh, Hummels and Ginter at the back. And then players start to get sold out because it's the Dortmund way. And it's what they do. And Hummels went on to Bayern Munich. Ilkay Gundogan went to Manchester City. Mkhitaryan went to Manchester United. Adrian Ramos, who was kind of an important backup attacker, got sold off to China. They bring in Usman Tembele, Mark Bartra, who's not very good. They bring back Mario Gotze. That was a mistake in hindsight. They bring in Andreas Scherler. That was a mistake. They bring in a young Alexander Isaac, who, as we know, has gone on to do great things. They bring in a young Mikel Moreno. There's, they start to load up on talent. And again, that second season, they were just tremendous going forward. Now, they finished third in the league and they finished well off the top. But this was a new, younger team. This wasn't the team that had all the experience of the previous year. But Aubameyang was still brilliant. Royce had an injury-plagued season. Usman Dembele was phenomenal for them. Pulisic stepped up and started to look like a potential long-term starter. Schürrle flopped. Gotze was injured and flopped. Bartra wasn't particularly good. They couldn't replace Gundogan. And things started to go badly. But my point on this is, that team was built on a high-octane, aggressive style of attacking football. Like, when we see City do things, they do them in a, a very measured, almost surgical manner, which is, you know, that death by a thousand cuts. City don't look to pummel you into the ground. City dance around you and they just 
you know, they cut you here and there and everywhere, and then you just bleed out. That's the end of you. Jurgen Klopp's football is to take a hammer and attack you to the head. Thomas Tuchel's football was similar to Pep's, but a bit more frenzied. Instead of death by a thousand cuts, it was more like death by a hundred slashes. So they would go hell for leather at you. And with their pace and their movement, Aubameyang, Royce, Dembele, Mkhitaryan before him, Kagawa, Pulisic, all quick-minded, quick-footed players. Bar Kagawa, who's not the quickest player, but very quick-minded. But all of these players moving, interchanging, get runners from midfield. That's what they were, and they were phenomenal to watch. And again, like I said, Aubameyang has never been that good since. That's what he... That's what he needs. And the funny thing is that if Aubameyang, that, if that Aubameyang, or even the Aubameyang that joined Arsenal, was joining Arsenal now with Saka and Mark Nelly and Smith Rowe and Odegaard, that's actually the perfect team for him to walk into. The problem is he's a couple of years older now. He got the big contract. Maybe not as motivated, but that Aubameyang, he would have been lights out in this Arsenal team. But... That was what Tuchel wanted to do. That's what he wanted. And if he'd stayed at Dortmund, I think he would have built backwards, fixed his defence, got a better goalkeeper in, sorted his midfield. And I think eventually he would have built a great Dortmund team that could have won a league title. What happened was he fell out with Mislintat, Sven Mislintat, who was the chief scout, I think, I think he was chief scout at the time. And Mislint had obviously ended up going to Arsenal. And then he fell out with everybody there and flamed out and went back to Germany. He's with Stuttgart now. But Tuchel moved on. And there was a lot of bad things said about Thomas Tuchel. And I think they coloured a lot of what people think about Thomas Tuchel. But when you listen to what his players have had to say, when you hear the stories about the harmony he creates in the dressing room, they don't. that doesn't fit with the perception of him. The perception of him is this prima donna, prissy, highly demanding lunatic. And the reality is he's apparently very warm, very engaging, all about the team concept, doesn't take praise from self, puts all of that onto the team but deflects criticism away from the team by bringing it on to himself. Those are things that get players buy-in. He went to PSG, and I think the ex expectation was he will bring that style of football to PSG. And unfortunately, when he walked into PSG, things just... We're never going to work there as they had at Dortmund because number one, the expectations were much higher. You walk into PSG, winning the league is automatic. What you have to do is win the Champions League, and anything else is seen as a big failure. But Tuchel walks in, and the dressing room he faces is entirely different than what he had at Dortmund.
here it's all superstars. And go and look through that squad. It's ridiculous. Gigi Buffon, Thiago Silva, Marquinhos, Verratti, Mbappe, Cavani, Neymar, Di Maria. Like Julian Draxler, notoriously, notoriously full of himself. Adrian Rabio, problematic. Gets a lot of good young players, the likes of Nkunku, the likes of Diaby. Stanley and Saki is still there. Colin Dagba is making his way. And I think he would have been much happier to work with them than he was with the Neymars and the Mbappes and, and things like that. Because now not necessarily Neymar, or not necessarily Mbappe, but I do think with players like Neymar and maybe one or two others, they do look at the manager and think, well, what were you as a player? Like, what were you as a player? And the truth is, Thomas Tuchel wasn't a particularly good player. He retired at the age of 26, didn't have much of a career. And I don't think he gained the instant respect from the likes of Neymar. And I think that put him on the back foot, as well as the demands of, you know, you've got to go and win the Champions League. So when he's setting his team up, I mean, he probably wants to play Neymar on the left wing, Mbappe through the middle, De Maria off the right, and maybe, you know, you find the number 10 and you work from there. Maybe maybe that number 10 is, is Draxler. But you've got to put Cavani in the team. Then Neymar doesn't necessarily want to play on the left wing in a 4-2-3-1. He wants to play on the left of a 4-3-3. So you go 4-3-3, you go Mbappe, you go Cavani, you go Neymar. Now you've got a problem. When you lose the ball, you've only got eight players because none of them are kept coming back. You've got to put a, put Di Maria in the team because he's one of the best players. So now you've got to put him in the midfield. And while Di Maria will work very hard, he's still more of an attacking player. He doesn't have the greatest attacking instincts. So what's he forced? You've also got Thiago Silva there, remember. And Thiago Silva, by the time Tuchel took over, had fallen off. But PSG, Thiago Silva's captain. Thiago Silva was a god there. So he's got to play. So what do you do? You put Thilo Carrera at right back. You don't want to put him at right back because he's not a right back. And you want to play an attack-minded right back, not a centre-back. You take Marquinhos, who's one of the best centre-backs in the world, and you put him in holding midfield. You don't want to have him there, but you've got to put him there because you've got to protect Thiago Silva. You put Kimbembe next to him, and that's what you roll with. They don't ever buy you a decent left-back, ever. He, he never had a good left-back. Juan Bernat is all right. Kurzawa is all right. But he never had the full-backs he needed. He never got bought the centre-back he wanted to partner Marquinhos. He got given a washed Buffon. And that's just the unfortunate fact of it, a washed Gigi Buffon. And... He was forced to play a team that never really had the balance he wanted them to have. And he was never going to be given a chance to build anything there because, first things first, like I mentioned, the pressure to win is obscene. And secondly, Leonardo makes the player decisions. He makes the, the decisions regarding, you know, who comes and who stays and who plays where. He also, remember, Danny Alves in that team as well. And another one notorious for looking at managers and saying, well, what have you won? So... I just don't think he got dealt a good hand at PSG. Now, what he did do is he got them to a Champions League final. 
you know, he got them to the group, the round of 16 the first year, and he won the league title. The second year, he won the treble and finished as runner-up in the Champions League. And they were quite unfortunate to lose that final to, to Bayern Munich as well. He managed a brilliant game. They just couldn't get the job done in the final. And again, he's having to make do with players that not, aren't necessarily the best fit. At one point, he was having to line out with four centre-backs in defence because they just didn't have the full-backs to do the job. He's never given that defensive midfielder that he really wanted. He's given Ander Herrera and people like this. You know, he asked for more help up front. They gave him Chupamoting. Came from Stoke. And then he takes over at Chelsea. And I thought him taking over at Chelsea was going to be really exciting because I thought we would see more of the Dortmund Tuchel. And instead, we've seen a completely new iteration. So rather than the uber-attacking football that we saw at PSG, what we end up with is this uber-defensive stuff that we saw last season. Now, the reason for that is he took over a team that were in free fall. He identified a major weakness in that squad, which was a lack of quality defenders. And he realized that he didn't have the defenders to play it back to on a regular basis. Silva can't really play in a two anymore. Rudiger washed in a two. Uh, Zuma could play in a two, but he didn't seem to fancy him. Aspie, too small to play in a two. Christensen can play in a two, but he's a little bit inconsistent still. So what's the best solution? Well, the best solution is let's play a back three. Let's create a defensive system here where it's a bend-don't-break system, where we're going to not take any risks. We're going to be very, very disciplined. And what we're going to do is allow opponents to take shots from areas that we want them to shoot from. Again, similar to Potter, similar to Bruno Lage at Wolves, we're going to allow them low probability opportunities, and that's it. And we're going to get the best out of what we have here. And because he went with that and sort of developed a style of counterattacking football, Chelsea went on and won the Champions League. And you would have thought that winning the Champions League now gives him breathing space. This gives him the opportunity to step back and really start to mould this team into the way he wants them to play. And then you remember, this is Chelsea. This is Chelsea Football Club. This is not a club that gives managers any time at all. Like, let's look at under Roman Abramovich, the managers who've been through there, right? So Claudio Ranieri gets them top four and gets sacked. They bring in Mourinho. He wins back-to-back -back league titles. He would have won a third title, but they got decimated with injuries. And then he gets sacked in September 2007. After two titles and a second place in three years, he's sacked 
in the September of the fourth year. Avram Grant takes over. They bring in Luis Felipe Scolari, a World Cup winner. They sack him after 36 games. And they bring in Gus Hiddink. Then they bring in Carlo Ancelotti. He wins the double in his first year. They sack him after a second year. They go and they pay a £13 million buyout to Porto for Andre Villas-Boas. Give him a six-year, fully guaranteed contract. And they sack him after eight months. And they pay him out the whole amount and off he goes. They appoint Roberto Di Matteo. They win a Champions League. Di Matteo takes over in the March, wins the Champions League in the May, and is sacked in the November. He won a Champions League in May and got sacked in November. They appoint Rafa Benitez. He wins the Europa League. They sack him. They bring back Mourinho. In his second season, he wins the league, and then they sack him in the December. Seven months later, out the door. Again, Gus Hiddink comes back and sees them through. They bring in Antonio Conte. He wins the league and they sack him 12 months later. They bring in Mauricio Sarri. He wins the Europa League and they sack him. Now, they appointed Lampard because his name is Frank Lampard and sacking him was the right thing to do. But Thomas Tuchel is a very smart man. And he will have looked at Sarri, Conte, Mourinho, Benitez, Di Matteo, Villas-Boas, Ancelotti, and Mourinho. And he will realize they don't give anybody a chance here. They don't give anybody time at this club. The longest serving manager of the Roman Abramovich era is Mourinho the first time around, the first manager he appointed, 185 games. Jurgen Klopp just managed his 350th game for Liverpool. He only joined the club in 2015. He's not even close to being the longest-serving Liverpool manager. I mean, Benitez was there as long. Julier was there as long. Roy Evans was there probably a little bit longer. I'd have to check that. But it, it, regardless, like they all got 300 plus ma uh, matches in charge. Brendan Rodgers, how many games did he oversee at Liverpool? Brendan Rodgers. Uh, Brendan Rodgers managed 100 166 games at Liverpool. So 19 less than Mourinho. And Brendan Rodgers is a blip. For Liverpool. Mourinho is like an epic adventure. Three years and a couple of months. And I, I think this is why Thomas Tuchel is not showing what he can really do at Chelsea. Because he knows he won't be given time. Everybody continually talks about Thomas Tuchel needing more backing. And he does, but not financially. What Thomas Tuchel needs, he needs Abramovich to say, you know what? You've got two years to turn this into what you want it to be. I'll, I'll give you two years of no interference, no pressure. Just keep us in the top four if you can. And 
let's roll and see what you can do. That's what he needs. He needs time. He needs the vote, the verbal backing. He needs the space. He doesn't need more money to spend. They've spent enough now, in fairness, he does, because they need centre-backs. And he probably needs a holding midfielder. But he needs the other type of backing more than he needs financial backing. He could sell big chunks of the squad away to build back what they need. But this is the way with Chelsea. They don't allow anybody any time. Fikayo Tomore and Mark Wehi would start for them. They didn't give them time to develop. They sold them. Levi Caldwell will probably go the same way. Chelsea are currently crying out for wing-backs. Tino Livramento and Tariq Lamptey are two of the most exciting wing-backs in the league. They're both out on loan. Oh, sorry, they're both sold. They're crying out for, for wing-backs. And they let Livermento go in the summer. Nobody gets time at Chelsea. Nobody gets the right opportunities. Now, it's, it's not to criticise. You can't criticise when you see the success they've had under Roman. But this is why Thomas Tuchel is struggling at Chelsea. It's not because he's a bad coach, because he's not. He's a brilliant manager. He is one of the six or seven best managers in world football. He's right up there. But Chelsea is not the right club for a guy like him to implement what he wants to implement. Because if it goes wrong, even in the short term, you won't see the long term. It's insane to me that we're 22 years, 23, no, what, no, sorry, we're 19 years now into the Abramovich, the, the Abramovich era. And the longest serving manager is Mourinho's first go round. And in the years since, Conte, Mourinho the second time, and Ancelotti are the only ones who've seen 100 games. Like Ranieri, who took over in 2000 and left in 2004, he's the longest serving Chelsea manager, in fairness, He's the longest-serving Chelsea manager since John Neal in the mid-'80s. So, to be fair to Roman, it's not just a Roman thing. Ken Bates was at the same crack beforehand of just binning off managers. The difference being, they weren't having the same kind of success. Now, I know Hullet and Viali won a couple of cups, but this is just what Chelsea have been. You can go back to the to Dave Sexton. He was there a long time. Tommy Doherty, Ted Drake, uh, Billy Burrell, Leslie Knight, and Dave Calderwell. They were all there a long, long time. But the culture of Chelsea, certainly since the Ken Bates era and absolutely under Roman, has been success or go. There's never been a time where a manager's been told, let's build something here. Chelsea don't like to build things slowly. They like 
instantaneous you know gratification they want that instant buzz of success and if it doesn't arrive i mean the only manager who's ever really been told we want you to completely change things here we want you to build something long term was vs boas who again they appointed in june paid 13 million on a buyout gave him a six-year guaranteed contract and sacked him the following March after 40 games. So, Thomas Tuchel will eventually get the heave-ho from Chelsea. It's just what will happen. But people shouldn't judge him on the fact that he hasn't been able to... like. This thing where people call him Tuchelban and, you know, slag him off as a defensive manager and all, that's not what he is. It's the hand he was dealt and what he's brilliant at is working with the hand he was dealt. And unfortunately for him, he's never been able to ask the dealer for a fresh hand. Yes, they went and they signed Lukaku in the summer. I don't think that was a Thomas Tuchel signing. He is not a Thomas Tuchel type of number nine. I don't think that's what Tuchel wanted. I think that was Marina and Roman interfering as they always interfere. And when Tuchel gets sacked, it will be to someone else's great benefit. Because someone else, like, you look at Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool. Jurgen Klopp was given his first year as a free hit. Liverpool finished, I think, eighth. Got to a Europa League final and lost. But that's a failed season. The second season, they finished fourth. The third season, they finished fourth and got to a Champions League final. It wasn't until year four that he won something. Chelsea managers don't even see year four. One of them in 19 years has seen the fourth season. One. Klopp will soon double the longest tenure of a Roman Abramovich era manager because Klopp was given time and space. Look at Arteta, back-to-back eighth-place finishes. Oh, you won an FA Cup Thanks for coming. Good luck. That wouldn't wash at Chelsea. But Arteta has been given time. Moyes has been given time. Spurs gave Pochettino time. But Chelsea just don't give managers time. It's just not what they do. Even Pep got time at City that first season to settle in, to start to change things. Chelsea don't don't allow that. And the thing is, I wonder how much of an effect has this had on Chelsea's a, a, appeal to big-name managers? Because we, we know Pep has turned them down a few times. We know Klopp has turned them down. And I'd imagine there's other managers that would look at them and say, no, I'm not going there. Like, I'm sure they pay fantastically well and all the rest, but is it really worth it knowing it's a short-term job? If you're the type of manager that 
has long-term plans. Yeah, for a Mourinho, it's great. But, you know, if you if you have eyes on being a Klopp or a Guardiola or a, a Simeone and you want to go somewhere and you want to build something over a long period of time, Chelsea's not the club to do it. You know, I, I think Brendan Rodgers would take the job now. I don't know if they would have him back um, because he burned some bridges there over the years. But, you know, he did once say, I wouldn't join Chelsea because I'm trying to build my career, not break it. And that's probably something that a lot of managers think. Now, Chelsea will always have appeal. And, you know, you're walking into a great situation with a quality squad. Needs some work, but there's, you know, there's great players there. You're going to get financial backing. You're going to get really well compensated for your time. But I, I just, I just don't feel like Chelsea provides the type of job security that will allow a guy like Thomas Tuchel to flourish. And that's why I think Chelsea are struggling. And that's why I think they play the way they do. Uh, I'll take a quick break. Uh, I don't want to go too long today. I've gone very long the last two days. But I'll be back in a minute. Uh, We've got my best, least capped national teams. Uh, and some gossip and some news and we'll be back in a minute so I'll see you, see you soon right welcome back so uh, Isaac Gilding asked me last week to do best 11s of players who didn't get capped or enough caps for a bunch of countries now I've done four countries I've done France, Germany, Spain, and England. I'm only really happy with the England one, to be honest. I tried to keep it as as recent as possible. So I tried to do sort of, you know, the Premier League era. um, And I tried to do the same for all the countries. Um, You know, kind of 90s onwards. Not to be looking back too far. Um, And obviously, it's difficult to know about France and Germany and and Spain in the 90s and stuff like that. But I, th- I think these are all right, but I'm happy with the England one anyway. So I'll start with Germany. I've gone Rene Adler in goal. Um, tremendous goalkeeper. He and Manuel Nauer broke through around the same time, and he was the more highly regarded goalkeeper. He had a couple of bad injuries, a bad rib injury, and then he got a concussion, and he never really seemed to be the same again. But Rene Adler got 12 caps for Germany. And Manuel Nauer has, I believe, well over 100. Manuel Nauer. Uh, 108. So, yeah. Um, Oliver Sorg. Quality fullback. Could play both sides. Only got one cap. Uh, Serdar Tashki was part of the Stuttgart team that won the Bundesliga. Really good defender. 14 caps. Should have been a lot more. Uh, I've got the two Bender brothers. Uh, these are my... So I've got Sorg at left back. Sorry, I've got Tashki right back, Sorg left back, and the two Bender brothers as centre-back. Now, they were predominantly holding midfielders, but they finished off playing centre-back. So I'll go with them there. Uh, Sven, I think, got seven, and Lars got 19. Both of them should have won a lot more. Two really good midfielders. Both retired far too early. Retired at 31 together. Just had enough of the game and, and moved on. Um, 
my midfielders are all still playing. I've got Max Meyer, only four caps. When he was breaking through, he was seen as like the best German prospect going. Uh, four caps. Julian Weigel, five caps. If you remember when he moved to Dortmund uh, under Thomas Tuchel, I might point out, and, and looked like he was about to develop into what Rodri is now, and Pep was desperate to get him to City. Then he had that horrific ankle injury, and he's never been the same, but five caps. Uh, Kareem Demerbe, two caps. That guy's an outstanding midfield player. How does he only have two caps? Aaron Hunt, three caps. Now, I might be overrating him a little bit because he played for Werder Bremen for a long time, so I watched an awful lot of him. But he was a really, really good player. Um, three caps is really low. Up front, then, I've got um, Christian Zickler. Is it Christian Zickler? Alexander Zickler. Alexander Zickler. Yeah. Alexander Zickler. Uh, 12 caps. Really good striker for Bayern Munich, for Red Bull Salzburg. Only the 12 caps, two goals. Uh, currently an assistant manager at um, Borussia Dortmund. He's been working under Marco Rose for years now. Um, but yeah, he, he should have won a lot more caps. Very, very good player. And 12 caps just wasn't enough. And then I've got Lars Ricken, who, if you remember Lars Ricken, he broke through at Borussia Dortmund, scored an amazing goal in the 97 Champions League final, came on and literally with his first kick of the ball from about 40 yards, clipped it over Angelo Peruzzi into the back of the net to seal the victory for, for Dortmund. Was, was meant to be the next big thing in Germany. And injuries just ruined his career. Um, he stayed at Dortmund a long time. Stayed at Dortmund his entire career, but only ever made 301 uh, league appearances for them. It should have been an awful lot more. It should He should have been playing for years and years more. He was done by, by 31. He, he should have played a long, long time. And those last three years were just spoiled. But even before that, he just constant muscle injuries. Um, only 16 caps for Germany. The guy should have gotten to 100 caps. He should have gotten to 100 caps. Now, there's one other player I was going to include here for the Germans. And that's Sebastian Deisler. But he got 36 caps. And I tried to set myself a cutoff of 25 caps. But Sebastian Deisler, when he when he broke through at Gladbach and then really kind of exploded onto the scene at Hertha Berlin, this was this was the German Beckham. This was the guy that was going to be the savior of German football. The national team was going to be built around him. He got in a bad knee injury. At Hertha. He went to Bayern. And he just never settled. The knee was never the same. And all of the pressure. All of the expectation. 
just got to him to the point that he just couldn't play football anymore. Um, he couldn't get himself fit, suffered from severe depression, suffered from anxiety over his lack of fitness and the pressure that was on him and the expectations and everything else. And unfortunately, Germany's biggest talent was done by the age of 27. He retired. Now, credit to Bayern, they paid out the rest of his contract and Deisler moved on with his life. But what a player, if you remember him, what a player he was. Sensational. And he's just gone on and led a quiet life. He, I don't think he's got any involvement in football anymore. But, yeah, I mean, he, he was... He, he had too many caps to make this team, but he would have made it if, if he had 25 or less. I have cheated it when I have broken my own rule on France um, for one player. But I've got Mikel Landru in goal, only 11 caps. Should have been a lot more, but was just unfortunate to be behind the likes of Barthez. Um, Yanga Mbia, you'll remember him. He played for Newcastle, four caps. He was a really good defender for a long time in... The French League didn't really work for Newcastle. I think he went to Roma after that. Didn't work there. But he went back to Lyon and was outstanding. Um, Bruno Engotti, really good defender. Only got six caps. Americ Laporte, zero caps. And now he plays for Spain. So I had to include him. Um, I've, I kind of moved somebody out of position here because I couldn't find a left back that I wanted to put in. So I've got Charles and Zogbia, who... Very, very frustrating, but super talented. And when he was on, was really fun to watch. Only got two caps. In midfield, Jeremy Menez. One of the most exciting dribblers I've ever seen. 24 caps. Uh, Oliver Decor. You remember he played for Leeds, played for Everton. Really good Premier League midfielder. Was just unfortunately part of a great era of French midfielders. He got 21 caps. Jan Mvia one of the most one of the most promising young midfielders I've ever seen. At 19, that guy was going to be the next Roy Keane, Graham Souness. And it, for one reason or another, attitude, behavior, bad advice, whatever, never worked out. He's had a he's had a solid career. He was really good for Sunderland when he came to the Premier League. But 22 caps, I think he had them all by the age of like 21. And, uh, yeah, his career hasn't gone as planned. Um, and Laurent Robert, uh from Newcastle fame, uh, on the left wing, nine caps. Absolute rocket launcher of a left foot. Up front, Luis Saha. Um, great Premier League goal scorer. Really good striker. Only 20 caps. And I, I broke my own rule on this. Patrice Loco, 26 caps. He was one of the, the first French players I ever saw quite a bit of and just fell in love with him uh, in the sort of build up to like Euro 96 and all that. He was so, so good. Now he was a bit loco, unfortunately, uh, but incredibly talented footballer. So that's my France one. Uh, next we move to Spain again, not, not overly chuffed with this, but it is what it is. Uh, I've got Victor Valdez and goal only 20 caps. 
when you consider how high of a level he played at for so long, but obviously Iker Casillas, you know, just unfortunate. Um, I, I put Juan Bernat as my left back. I'm not a huge Juan Bernat fan, but um, he was a solid left back. And I think for other countries, he would have gotten more caps. I think he would have played more often um, if he had play, been English or whatever. Um, I went with Juan Valesco as my right back. Uh, Norwich fans might remember a short period that he had there. Played for Sevilla, played for Celta Vigo. Just a solid right back. Simple as that. I couldn't. He was at Euro 2000. Couldn't think of many others that really fit the bill. Um, Ignacio Nacho Camacho, nominally a holding midfielder, but did play uh, centre-back quite a bit in his career. Really good player. Only one cap. Now, Busquets is the biggest reason for that, but still, only one cap. Uh, Sergio Escudero, no caps. I thought he was a very good defender. Had a really good career. Was with Sevilla up until recently. I don't know where he is now. Uh, in midfield, I've gone with four central midfielders that you can put in a box or a diamond or something. Uh, Gabby, Atletico Madrid legend. One of the great leaders. No caps. Ander Herrera, two caps. Surprised by that. Not a great player, but he's been around a long time, played for big clubs, played at the highest level, and a valuable squad player, I would have thought, but two caps. Um, as David Moyes would say, Iremende, Iremende, Asir Iremende, three caps. Really good midfield player, great passing range. Went to Real Madrid for like 30 million or something. Uh, didn't work, went back to Sociedad. Tremendous player, three caps. And Mikel Arteta, no caps. I don't know how Mikel Arteta didn't win a cap. When you consider, like, I get not winning them later in his career when, you know, your Javis and Iniestas and Busquets and all those were around. But how didn't he win one back in the early 2000s? Like, he was really good for Rangers between 02 and 04. You know, he was in Everton from 2005. Spain weren't good in 2005. I don't know how he didn't win a senior Spanish cap. One, I really don't. Um, up front, I've gone for Iago Aspas. Now, Liverpool fans may laugh, but he has had a really good career for Celta Vigo. Now, he has 18 caps. He may well get to the 25 threshold, but he is 34 now, so I doubt it. But he has been sensational since going back to Celta, and he was good there the first time. But you're talking about a guy that's, you know, 26 goals, 23 goals, 11 goals. He's just been exceptionally good since going back there. He's basically a goal every two games across the last six and a half years for Celta Vigo. And um, to only have the 18 caps, I think, is low. I think it's really low. He had one good year. He hasn't been capped since 2019, so he's probably not getting back in. He had one good year of caps in 2018. 
and he hasn't had a look in in three years now. So I've got him. And then I've got Juan Pizzi. Um, Juan Antonio Pizzi. I don't know if people remember him as much, but he was a really good striker. Now, he was Argentinian by born by birth. 22 caps for uh, for Spain. Eight goals. Was really good for Tenerife back in the early 90s. Had a couple of great seasons. Earned a move to Barcelona. Didn't really go all that well and was kind of the end of him as a, a top-flight striker. But his time at Tenerife, I thought, earned him more than 22 caps. So that's who I've got for Spain. And then for England, right, because I tried to keep it recent, I want to give nods of the cap or a doff of the cap to three people. Ron Chopper Harris, no caps. Tremendous player for Chelsea for years. Jimmy Case, no caps. Unbelievably good for Liverpool for years. And Billy Bonds, who, you know, was kind of the main player for West Ham for a little while. Uh, no caps. No caps. So, um, I've got a 3-4-3 type thing going on. Did also want to mention David Bentley because I thought he was going to be really good. And I thought at Blackburn he was really good, but the move to Spurs didn't work. He got seven caps, but he's not in the team. In goal, I've got Tim Flowers, 11 caps. Tim Flowers was a brilliant goalkeeper. He might have been a top five keeper in Europe for a spell in the 90s. But because David Seaman was a top two or three keeper in Europe, he never got a look in for England. 11 caps. Um, I've got three centre-backs. I've got Keith Curl, Manchester City legend. He got three caps. He was a really good defender. Really, really good defender. But in an era where England were loaded with great defenders, your Adams, your... Terry Butcher, your Mark Wright, Gary Pallister, uh, Des Walker, Stuart Pearce able to play in a back three. You know, he was just unfortunate the era he played in, but Keith Curl was a really good defender. Um, I've got Jonathan Woodgate, eight caps. Jonathan Woodgate had the talent to be the defender people think John Terry was. Jonathan Woodgate had far more ability than John Terry, but he had horrendous luck with injuries. And Ledley King is the best of that group of centre-backs, of Terry, of Ferdinand, of Woodgate, of Carragher. Ledley King is the best of that group. He got 21 caps because injuries ruined his career. But Ledley King was on a different level to every one of them. If King and Woodgate hadn't had injuries... Ferdinand and Terry wouldn't be talked about. Um, I've gone for two wingers as my wing backs, and these might surprise people. I've gone Stuart Ripley at right wing back. He got two caps. And Jason Wilcox at left wing back. He got three caps. They were exceptional for Blackburn. Key parts of that title winning team. Just outstanding players. Nothing flashy about them. Just, you know, chalk on the boots wingers. Up and down, incredibly hard-working, great crosses of the ball. Ask Alan Shearer if he rates them. Uh, in central midfield, I've got two ex-Arsenal players. I've got Paul Davis, who somehow got no caps. I can only think it's because he punched that fella and broke his job. But I think that was late in his career. Paul Davis was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. 
that upright style of his, great passer, left-footed, tough as nails, him and Rowcastle, that was a great midfield. Um, I'll never understand how he got no caps. And then next to him, I've got Paul Merson, who people laugh at now because he's a, you know, he's a bit of a clown and whatever else, and he talks a bit of bobbins, but Paul Merson was an unbelievable player. People talk about inverted wingers as if it's some new thing. Like, and the modern inverted winger we can trace to Robert Perez at Arsenal. But what people forget is that Anders Limpar and Paul Merson were both doing that in the 80s and 90s. They were both right-footed, both predominantly played on the left-hand side. Now, one of them would have to play on the right, but they both preferred to play off the left. Paul Merson was a fantastic football player. Pace, dribbling ability, creativity, incredible vision. And he had a much better career than people give him credit for. Much better career. You know, what he did at Borough, what he did at Villa, what he did at, at Portsmouth. He was a really, really good player. And Paul Merson makes my team. He should have won much more than 21 caps. Up front, then, I've got Matt Letizia as my 10, 8 caps. Arguably the most talented player of his generation, English player of his generation. Eight caps. Les Ferdinand, 17 caps. That fella was a guaranteed goal in the Premier League in the 90s. Incredible in the air, great hold-up play, quick and powerful. Les Ferdinand was just a super player. 17 caps. Obviously, the reason for that is Alan Shearer. But Les Ferdinand deserved far more than 17 caps. And Stan Collymore. 3 caps. Stan Collymore to me is the single biggest waste of talent and I don't mean to say he wasted his talent he did to an extent but his mental health failed him at the worst possible time. Stan Collymore had everything. 6-2 powerful, pacey, great skill, could do anything with a football. Three caps. And that's it. That are my they're my teams. I, I hope that's okay. I did forget to do Italy. That's on me, so apologies for that. Uh, if I think of it, I will do it. But yeah, that's what I've got. Um not as many uncapped players, uh, but I was sort of focusing on you know getting in the best players to kind of got the, the toughest time. Uh the latest in AFCON, we had some games last night, and if you missed out you missed out Ghana are out Ghana lost 3-2 to Comorish and they they are out um bottom of their of their of their group embarrassing genuinely embarrassing Gabon drew 2-2 with Morocco um they went one up through Alaveni Bufal with a penalty on 74 then Aguerd with a penalty or with an own goal put Gabon back up on 81 before Ashraf Hakimi scored on 84 to equalise. Morocco go through top of the group, Gabon second. Comoros will go into the potential um, 
you know, best third place team. We have games tonight. We have Guinea-Bissau against Nigeria. We have Egypt against Sudan. And then tomorrow we get Ivory Coast against Algeria, Sierra Leone against Equatorial Guinea, Gambia against Tunisia, and Mali versus Mauritania. I think that's it for tonight. Two games, that is it. Uh, There's not a whole lot of news, to be completely honest. Um, Everything is fairly quiet. Wayne Rooney apparently is going to be interviewed for... The job at Everton, Lampard's going to be into. I think these are dreadful ideas. Um, Jose Mourinho is apparently in the frame. He's being considered. I wonder if Roma wouldn't be quite happy to let him go if they got a payoff. I wonder if they're not, you know, a, a little bit filled with regret for appointing him in the first place. But we'll wait and see what happens with, with the, the Everton job. Either way, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look like they're going to do anything smart. So, you know. Uh, right, gossip. Jose Mourinho says he is committed to the club and has distanced himself from the Everton job. Everton will interview Frank Lampard and Wayne Rooney. Have Derby granted an interview for Rooney? I doubt they have. Uh, Stephen Gerrard is looking to bring Luis Suarez to Aston Villa. Interesting. Newcastle are in talks with Bayer Leverkusen over a deal for Mitchell Backer. Wouldn't be a big fan. I think they've got a better left back there now in Jamal Lewis, but he is out injured for a while. So, and look, they're just literally throwing shit against the wall and hoping some of it sticks, hoping they can find somebody to join the club. They must have bid for about 80 players by now. Uh, this one is a lie. Newcastle are considering signing Adana Demospor and Italy forward Mario Balotelli. According to the Turkish club's president, he is talking out of his backside. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain are in talks with Paul Pogba and Frank Kessie. The moves are also aimed at convincing Kylian Mbappe to stay. I don't know that signing Paul Pogba would convince me to stay. Um, Pogba has told Manchester United he wants to join Real Madrid. That's not your decision, Paul. That's Real Madrid's decision. Juventus have held talks with France and Manchester United striker Anthony Martial. But the Serie A giants are yet to contact the Old Trafford club. Well, since a journalist seems to know that, you'd imagine United know that. and You'd imagine they'd report to to UEFA for tapping up. So we'll just put that one firmly in a bin. Um, Arsenal have received a boost in their hopes of signing Brazil and Juventus midfielder Arthur Mello with the Italian club in negotiations to sign Bruno Gomerich. Arsenal will be better off signing Bruno Gomerich. Uh, Juventus have also reached out to Denis Zakaria to replace that. He's not anything like him, so it wouldn't be really a replacement. Uh, Arsenal have been dealt a blow with in their pursuit for Dusan Vlahovic, with the Serbian international claiming he only wants to join Juventus. I haven't seen him claim anything of the sort. This sounds like something that's been made up by the mail based on some rumours and some chicanery, but I'm going to just pass it over. Tottenham are still trying to sign Adama Traore despite Bruno Lage pushing to keep him until the end of the season. Tottenham are trying to offload Tangai Endombele, Matt Doherty, Deli Ali and Stephen Bergwijn. So says the spoofer, but we don't believe the spoofer. Uh, although he does he does kiss the backside of Paratici, so he's probably getting word from him. 
Uh, Brentford faced competition from Leicester and Newcastle in the bid to sign Christian Eriksen. If I was him, I would go to Brentford. Number one, big Danish group there. Number two, Brendan Rodgers disrespected you when he could have signed you to Liverpool. Number three, why would you want to go to Newcastle? Croatian forward Ivan Perisic, he's not a forward, he's a wide midfielder, uh, will not leave into Milan, into Milan in January. Inter are monitoring Paolo Dybala's situation at Juventus. Um, it would be quite funny if Inter stole him from Juventus on a free. It really would. Barca and Bayern are leading the race to sign Andreas Christensen, according to the spoofer. Barca are also lining up a move for Alexander Isak from Real Madrid. No, Real Sociedad, if they fail to sign Erling Haaland. Um, he, he will be one who gets a lot of looks. I, I think, I've said this before, Vlahovic will be the runners-up prize in the Haaland sweepstakes. If you can't get Haaland, you buy Vlahovic. Um, but Isak will definitely get strong consideration from a number of clubs. And Arsenal should be kind of looking at the likes of him. He fits the timeline of, of what they're building or what they're trying to build. Christian Benteke has no, no intention of leaving Crystal Palace this January. Uh, well, the club looking for him is Burnley, and I, I don't think he wants to go to Burnley. Uh, Liverpool are eyeing up a £5 million move for Fabio Carvalho. Uh, he's had a contract in the summer. They'll probably just try and sign him on a free then. Arsenal, Tottenham and Leeds are interested in Jed Spence. I've been pushing Jed Spence for years now, so I take all the credit for this. Uh, Pablo Mari is close to joining Udinese on loan. Arsenal have also let Kalasinac go on a free to Marseille, who apparently were under transfer ban. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, can't play games because they don't have enough players, but they can afford to let, you know, a load of players go. Uh, Serginho Dest has said he is happy at Barcelona. The issue is they're not happy with you. That That's basically what it is. Uh, Leeds will make an improved offer for Red Bull Salzburg's 21-year-old midfielder Brendan Aronson after an initial bid of 15 million was rejected. I don't think Leeds bid 15 million for him. Watford are set to sign Bordeaux winger Samuel Kalou after agreeing a fee in the region of 3.5 million. That's a great signing. He's a really good player. He could have the same kind of impact that Emmanuel Dennis has had. Um, he's a really good signing. Burnley are to make an improved offer for Republic of Ireland under-19 international Harry Vaughan after Oldham rejected an initial bid of an initial bid for the 17-year-old last summer. Um, Harry Vaughan's a quality young player. He's a midfield player. He's playing first-team football at the age of 17 in League Two, which is no mean feat considering he's getting volleyed up into the air on a regular basis. But, yeah, I can see why Burnley would want him. Kind of fits what their, their profile of a midfielder is. Uh, last bit there, Fenerbahce and Hungary centre-back Attila Zlaya has attracted interest from West Ham and Newcastle, with AC Milan also targeting the 23-year-old. He's also been linked with Chelsea. And that's it. I have gone long. I've gone much longer than I expected to. Um, I really do apologise. This week has just been a bit rambly. But it is what it is, and um, I, I make no, I make no apologies for it. In fact, I make no apologies. 
an hour and a half of good stuff. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks to Guy Drinko. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.